with great words to that song, my praise, my all shall be for Christ alone. I trust that's your heart as you think about your life in Christ, the salvation that Christ has accomplished on our behalf, the justification, the satisfaction of the sin penalty that we owed Christ has satisfied in his death on the cross, and God was satisfied in Christ. What a, it just brings chills to my, my spine as I think about that and, and all that God has accomplished. Would you take your Bibles with me and turn in them once again to our study of Ephesians tonight? Ephesians chapter 3. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3 where we are. It's where I want to read for us the verse 13 verses in order to once again set context for us in our time together as we think about the church. We think about the church. Apostle Paul says this, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for all ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf for they are your glory. Let's just bow before the Lord as we begin our time. Father, we do thank you for tonight, this time to be once again in your word as your people gathered together here to learn of you, to know of you, to hear what you would have for us that we might embrace it in our hearts and begin to live it out in our lives. We thank you for grafting us into this great plan of yours of redemption in which your name is glorified and honored through your people. We thank you for the privilege of being part of the testimony of our Savior Jesus Christ on this earth and throughout all eternity. What a joy it is for us to realize that and know that. May we embrace that with all that it is intended to be in our hearts. To your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 1999, as I was approaching the end of my seminary education, 
looking down the road at how the Lord has was planning to use me in His ministry of redemption, my, my wife and I began to pray and we began to enlist ourselves into whatever way God would have us so that we might at least try to discern exactly the direction for us in life. And we didn't clearly know if we would be heading to some mission field in some foreign, faraway land. We didn't know if we would be used in some other way. And so in the process of several months' time, I remember that there was a ministry opportunity that entailed being a disciple maker in a state capital and working as a non-governmental chaplain kind of thing in the capital of one of the state houses in our country. And so my wife and I took a trip with the director of this ministry and his wife to Pennsylvania in order for me to see this ministry possibility, this opportunity there, and meet with legislators from Pennsylvania and senators from the state of Pennsylvania in order to present the ministry to them. And so they had a lunch for uh, these people, whoever wanted to come, and when it came time for me to say a few words about what my desire would be, I stood up and began to speak about the authority of the Word of God and how it informs us of how we are to live in every circumstance and and that my task would not be to try to influence them in any kind of political sense, but would be to just jump both feet in the middle of their lives and try to help them understand who God is and the desire in their lives for Christ's likeness in whatever they did. The place went quiet. One of the legislators got up and walked out. And I sat back down until lunch was done. The director got up and said a few words. My wife and I, as we walked back to our hotel and discussed what had happened and where our hearts were, we, we came to a clear understanding about God's call for me. And the one thing that I loved was Christ, who is the head of the church. I knew that. And so upon our return from that trip, I met with the board of directors that oversaw the ministry in order for them to ascertain what my desires were. And when we were all gathered in the room, I came in and I sat down at the head of this long table with all these men around this table. And they asked me a question that was very clarifying. They asked, is your heart resolved to be a disciple maker in a capital Or is your heart resolved to be in the church? And that was an easy answer for me. Because I loved and desired to be in the church. To minister to the church. And of course that propelled me to where I am today and where I love to be in the church. With the body of Christ. And I still am amazed that God's care and love for me to use me in his church it's always an amazing thing that when you look at your life how God is using you well as I was studying chapter three again for our time tonight that all came flooding back to my mind in my 
thought process as I was thinking about what the Apostle Paul is saying here in chapter 3, because I believe that that is what is on the heart of the Apostle Paul as he's writing to these Ephesian believers. He is overwhelmed. He is absolutely amazed that God would actually use him in building not just the church, but that God would use him to bring about unity within the church. When Paul speaks of the mystery that was revealed to him, this is the mystery that he is talking about. It's not some ethereal thing. It is the church. It is the church unified. It is Jew and Gentile together in this entity that we know and that we belong to called the church. And I also believe that if we will grasp that reality for our own lives, if we will think about that in light of who we are in Jesus Christ and what God has done for us, then we will not just think differently about the church, but we will live differently for the church. You've heard me certainly throughout the years speak about the confusion I have about why it is that it seems that the professing church seems to treat the gathered church with such lackadaisicalness. I mean, we can just look at our own church. Let's just be honest about it. Even here in our own church, we gather on a Sunday morning, Lord's Day, and we might have 150 people here, and we gather here on a Sunday evening, and we have, what, 75, 80 people? Why is that? Why is that? I, I understand there are, there are a lot of different reasons that go into those things, and we're certainly not here to chide people for for reasons that are certainly valid reasons whereby someone may not be here, but for very arbitrary reasons oftentimes, and probably more often than we'd like to say, for very arbitrary reasons we keep ourselves away from being with the church and being used in the church into which God has had placed us. And while church attendance and church participation doesn't say everything about our love for God, and certainly it can be a temptation at claiming righteousness by means of externals, certainly people have done that, that if they check this box, mark this box, make sure I'm here all the time, and all these kind of things, that they begin to attach some kind of external righteousness to their life through the means of those things. But what I'm talking about, isn't it true that externals do say something about us in the internal sense? Aren't the externals some way of a reflection of what we are and how we think inside? I mean, James clearly tells us that faith without works is dead. In other words, that which is only internal, which is faith, you can't see it. It's an internal reality of our heart if it is not manifested externally with obedience to the commands of God, to the things of which God says we are to be and do as His children, then how can that be living faith? That's the idea James is talking about. So we can't just simply write off the externals. Externals matter. They matter. The things we do, they are a reflection of the heart. And therefore, is it not true that our love for Christ would be seen in our love for the church 
which is his body. And if that's the case, why was Paul so entrenched in the church? Why was the Apostle Paul so entrenched in the church? Well, because first, he was amazed that God would save him at all. And then secondly, that God would use him at all. Paul was amazed that God would save him at all and shocked that God would use him at all. And it is the Spirit's desire through the Apostle Paul that you and I would have the same heart. So let me ask us tonight, are you amazed that God saved you? Are you absolutely amazed that God saved you? I mean, think about it. We are not noble. Right? We are not the super intellectuals of the world. Well, maybe you are, I'm not. Right? Not many wise, as Paul said. We know ourselves, and if others actually knew all that God knew about us, well, that would be something, wouldn't it? They certainly would be amazed that God saved us. But He did. And that alone ought to amaze us. So if we think in terms of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said we were dead. Past tense, continuing action, reality of life. Spiritually, we were dead, but God made us alive. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God do that? For a ragtag bunch of people that really are nobodies and know nothings in a world that really is on its way away from God, going to hell. Why would God do that? Well, He did that so that He could and He would use us in His body. God saved us so that He could and would use us in His body, which we know is the church, in order to be the reflection of Christ on earth. That's what we are. Christ is the head, we are the body. We, the unwise, we, the untaught, we, the chief of sinners, God chose to use us in the church. I think if we grasp that as we ought, then we'll express our love for the church as we ought. And we will not be tempted to treat it like the days of Christ. Now, remember that Church, the idea of church as we know it was an unknown reality in the past, at least as God had intended it to be. Right? It was His design from the beginning that His redeemed people would be the manifestation of Jesus Christ on the earth until the day when Christ returns. We are that manifestation. We are the church, and we are the manifestation of Christ until He returns. The Old Testament believers didn't understand that. They didn't grasp that. They believed it would be Jew only as the people of God. Jew only as those who would be the representation of God's people because God had chosen them in times past. But that wasn't God's plan in eternity past. 
That wasn't the totality of the redemptive plan of God in the mind of God and in the, in, and in the divine wisdom of God. And so this entity that we know as the church was a mystery, Paul says. It was a mystery. And Paul says that the mystery was revealed by God to him and other prophets by the Holy Spirit. We looked at, at those things in, in our study in previous nights. And specifically, as we saw last time, that the Jew and the Gentile make up the church. And we looked at it specifically here from that verse 6, that we are together, 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 right? We are fellow members and fellow partakers and fellow heirs. We are the soon kleromenoi. We are the soon soma. We are the soon mektoka. That last time I said it was S-Y-N. It's not. It's S-U-N. My brain was working faster than my mouth was saying it last time. The Greek prefix is S-U-N. Either way, the principle's there. Right? The emphasis is that of togetherness. The emphasis is, is that of unity. The emphasis is that of bringing two together and making them one, not just in spiritual things, but also in the manifestation of those spiritual things in external practice. So that our spiritual air togetherness and our spiritual fellow fellow membership together and our partakers of the promise of Christ wouldn't just be something that is a spiritual entity, but would be seen in practice as we are together together in proximity with one another, and worshiping together with one another. In fact, I believe this is exactly what the Ephesian church failed failed at over time. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Colossae, and he, and he says to the Colossian believers the same truths, and, and he says, have this letter read to the Laodicean church. And we know in Revelation The Lord Jesus Christ indicts both the church in Ephesus and the church in Laodicea for realities of their spiritual life that that weren't what they should be. The Laodicean church was the lukewarm church. And we talked about that last time or a few weeks ago as to the reality that if the church is lukewarm, it's because the individual drops within the church are lukewarm. And so how can we not be lukewarm ourselves? And we talked about that But I believe this is why the Ephesian church failed. Why Jesus would say to them in Revelation chapter 2, you have forgotten your first love. In other words, the love you began with has grown cold. The love that you started with that had a fire burning that was blown with the embers and the wind, it's grown cold. Why? Because you've forgotten what I've done for you. You're no longer shocked that I saved you and brought you into this body, and so you have grown cold in your heart. You've grown cold, and the only answer when that is the case is to repent and return. That's what he says to Ephesus. That's what he says to that church in Revelation chapter 2. We don't have to do that if we comprehend and practice the hard attitude that we see here in the Apostle Paul. I just want to highlight this for us tonight and let us think about that in our own lives. Notice first the spiritual shock. The spiritual shock that is in the heart of the Apostle Paul. 
beginning in verse 8. He says, to me, to me, the very least of all the saints, to me. This is spiritual shock. Paul looks at his life and he looks at the the congruence of all of his life in light of who he was and in light of what God has done, and spiritual amazement floods his mind that God would actually use him at all. He never got over this in his life. He he never got past that reality in his own heart. It was part of what motivated him in ministry. This is part of the reality of Paul's mind. This is what got him off the bed every day. This is what pulled him out of the hole of stones that were on top of him when someone stoned him and he walks back into town to tell him the gospel. This is why Paul did his ministry, because he was under a divine... uh, pressure on his own heart that God would even use him. He had spiritual shock. Just listen to what he said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 16. He said, I thank him, that is Jesus Christ, who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer and a, prose- and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He said, but I received mercy for this reason. For this reason, this is why God saved me, he says. So that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, here's why God saved me. So that God's patient would be seen as an external reality to other people as they see me knowing who I was. And yet here I am being used by God for his body. And they would see the patience of Christ. If God can be patient with me, then certainly God can be patient with them. They believe upon Jesus Christ because of that. He says, to the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. The Apostle Paul was so amazed that God would use him at all. We think, oh, the Apostle Paul, this this super saint, and certainly God used him in great ways, and yet Paul was the one who probably would enter a room and say, listen, I'm not even worthy to be here. And it was this reality that undergirded not just his ministry. It was that reality that undergirded how he treated and exhorted others. He knew. He knew he was a nobody except through Jesus Christ. He knew that was what he was. His life verse probably would have been Proverbs 30, verses 2 and 3. This should be all of our verses. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. He said, I have not understanding of a man, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. That's what Paul probably understood about himself. 
was in light of his self-assessment that he would say to believers in Rome, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Listen, when you understand that where you came from and what God saved you from, there's no problem with you saying to others, listen, you go ahead of me. Listen, let me just serve you. Let me just, let me just sacrifice myself for you. Let me just burn myself out for you. I want you to see the patience of Christ. And you can see that in me. So Paul says, to me. This is, this is just, it's hard to get past just these words. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? It's all of grace. It's all of grace, our salvation, our inheritance. I mean, the song we sang, His robes for mine is all of grace. Doesn't matter. Our lives, our gifts, they're all of grace. Why then is it that often we believers neglect them as if it wasn't given to us by grace. Why is it that we neglect that? Why is it that we refuse to be used as God has graced us with? Why is it that many a believer decides on any given Lord's Day to arbitrarily stay away from being used by God? I wonder, have we forgotten are we no longer in spiritual shock that God would use us? That God would save us? Paul was. He was shocked. And his spiritual shock brought him to the reality of spiritual exercise. Notice what it says here in verse 8. He says, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to what? To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages was hidden in God who created all things. Now, to bring about the administration of the church, that's what he's talking about. It's a spiritual exercise. Paul says, it was given to me, this grace was given to me, not simply do I remain in this spiritual shock and sit there with this kind of uh, overwhelmed idea that, man, I can't believe God saved me, so I won't do anything. No, he says, God gave it to me. To me, this was given, so I go and do what God gave me to do, to preach. I preach so that people will understand exactly what God is doing. Let me say it again. Beloved, spiritual shock ought to bring about spiritual exercise. Spiritual shock should bring about spiritual exercise. Why? Because we understand that we are gifted to do as God has given to us. Right? Paul says, this gift of God's grace was given to me in verse 7. He says in verse 8, this grace was given. And it was given so that I might do it. I might exercise the gift of preaching so that they might bring to light 
to others what is this unfathomable gift. Paul never forgot that he was called to do what God gifted him to do. And so that propelled him to carry it out. He carried it out in the church and he carried it out for the church. Like verse 7 says, he says, I was made a minister according to God's gift of grace. It was given. What is Paul trying to say? He's simply saying this. It's all of grace and it's all given by God. Now that implies something, doesn't it? That implies that none of us should carry ourselves as if we are worthy to be Christians. It's all of grace. And that implies that all of the least of saints were given grace and that grace was given to us and God has gifted us for use in His body. It was grace that we got here and it was grace that gave us the gift to use and it's the body of Christ in which we are to use it. Paul's going to deal with this at length when we get to chapter 4. But for now, just suffice it to say that all is given by God. We cannot forget that. We cannot forget that. It's not because we drummed it up. It is not because, hey, listen, I decided one day to do whatever it is I do. Preachers are given to the church by God. And each and every gift in the church, each and every way those gifts are exercised within the church is given by God. This is His body, and that means, beloved, that we are helpless by ourselves. You and I are helpless by ourselves. We can't do it. This is what makes it an oxymoron to have an isolated Christian within the church. We're helpless by ourselves. We can't do it alone. We cannot exercise our gifts unless we realize that it was given to us, and it came through, verse 7 says, through the power of the Spirit. Through the working of His power. That's what Paul says. I was made a minister according to God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. In other words, none of our giftedness is according to our own power. It's only exercised according to the power of God. That is to say, we cannot exercise it on our own. But whenever there is some effectual ministry going on through God's people, it is because it was given by God and being carried out by the power of God. Not because of some charismatic leader and, oh, well, look at what he's done. As Dr. MacArthur used to say, bright lights attract a lot of bugs. Right? Jesus Christ, the brightest light of all, certainly attracted a lot of bugs, but the bugs didn't stay around long. In fact, they wanted to kill the, the light. We'll only exercise our gifts if we are shocked that God would use us at all. And why would we be used by God? Paul says, verse 9, he says, to bring about the light, which is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Here it is. This is the other shocking part of this. So that the manifold wisdom of God 
might now be made known through the church. Put your name there. So that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through you as part of the body to the rulers and the authorities, notice, in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. Spiritual shock produces spiritual exercise, which brings about a spiritual outcome. Spiritual shock, spiritual exercise, spiritual outcome. Notice, Paul says, the world and the heavens are watching and they are learning about the grace of God through us. As we proclaim the gospel by what we say and what we do, the world sees Christ. This is the idea. Verse 9, he says, to bring to light. Bring to light just means to explain or to uncover. To explain or to uncover. We have the privilege, beloved, to explain this great mystery that God, who is the creator of all things, is reconciling man to himself through his son. We have the privilege to explain that, not only in just words, but in how we live. And in doing so, he has brought about a new creation into being, and that new creation is called the church. And in the church, the world sees the redemptive power of the gospel of Jesus Christ on display. And he sees the interaction of each and every one within the church who loved Jesus Christ because God saved them from a life of sin and he took them out of the domain of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of his dear son. And they are living together in this unity together, building up one another so that we all mature to a, to a faith of Jesus Christ and others come into the church and they go, man, this place is different. This is different than any other place I've ever been. These people actually love one another. They're actually unified together. They're actually sacrificing themselves for one another. They're actually engaging in life with one another. They are doing things for one another. They are serving one another like I've never seen before. And we are in that proclaiming the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform a people who are the worst of sinners. They're saying, man, if God could change them, they can change me. Beloved, we're showing the world by means of our message and by means of our lives what is going to happen to this world in spite of all the turmoil we see today. People walk into the church and they see the people of God gathered. They see, they see a glimpse of glory. They see a glimpse of heaven. What is happening here in the temporal realm is not the final answer. What is happening here in our world is not the final answer. God is making, he says, all things new. God has a plan. He has a purpose for the whole of life in this world and for mankind. And it is revealed here in the Word of God. And it is only the foolish who say that the Bible isn't relevant. 
Nothing more is relevant than the gospel. And the gospel is the entire theme of the Bible. It's the one cohesive message that we find throughout all of Scripture. Jesus Christ, who is the church. He's the head of the church. It is all about what is going to happen when Jesus Christ comes. And therefore, we of all people should have the best understanding of our world today and what is to come. We don't need to be confused at all the wars and rumors of wars and turmoil that's going on in our world. This is our great privilege as the church. To stand fast. To be unified together. To proclaim to all people that there is hope. And there is reconciliation in Christ alone. And all of that will reveal the unfathomable wisdom of God to not only to the world, but to the angelic realms. You notice that? So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church, through you, through me, through us together, through every believer, through the entire globe. And yet through the manifestation of the body of Christ in the local bodies throughout the globe, that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are learning of the manifold wisdom of God. The angelic realm above looks upon us and looks with wonder. I wonder which kind of wonder they look at us with wonder. Is it, I wonder what they're doing, why they're doing that? Or are they looking at us with the wonder at which they ought to wonder and saying, man, I can't believe people like that whom were such dregs of society who were lost that had been cast aside because of their sin that God by His merciful grace and manifold wisdom would bring them back and all this bickering that was going on before has now brought these people together who didn't want to be with each other who hated each other before and now they're together and we see Christ, we see God's wisdom and they're reflecting the character of Jesus Christ. Mystery of God's full plan. It was not only hidden from man, it was hidden from angels. The angels certainly knew that God would do something. They certainly knew that God was one who would hold people accountable for a third of the angelic realm was swept away with the fall of even Lucifer himself. And they were condemned in an eternal destiny of hell. They knew He would do something, but they didn't know what. And by the church, they are enlightened to the manifold wisdom of God. So how we live out the gospel tells the world and the angel above about the gracious saving plan of God. That's what it does. How we use our gifts in the church, how we sacrifice for Christ, how we engage ourselves in the body of Christ tells the world and the angelic realm about the manifold wisdom of God or about the reality of our sin and why we won't believe and obey God. Don't We dare not arbitrarily choose to live another way. We dare not as believers, as part of the body, dare to live some other way apart from the church. This is why it's somewhat foolish to think that you can do church by yourself with a TV screen and that you're worshiping God. 
You may be listening to a message. It may be a Bible message. It may be a really good Bible message, but you are not worshiping God if you're not engaging yourselves in the body as God has given you by His grace to do. And so if you have the ability to do that, you must be doing that. This was always God's purpose. And by the way, by the way, if we thought that somehow God was adjusting to the schemes of men, we must readjust our thinking. This was his plan from the beginning. Notice verse 11 and 12. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. That says a whole lot to us about who we are in Jesus Christ and what our purpose is by being in the body of Christ and how we got there. It's always been the purpose of God. And why can we be bold about it no matter what the world does? Because we are in Jesus Christ. We are the church. We are the church. The gates of hell, Jesus said, will not prevail against it. So Paul is shocked. Absolutely stunned. And from that shock comes his spiritual exercise of why Paul does what he does. And the outcome of that is both to bring us to a wisdom and understanding of things in the world, watching world, to bring an understanding to them about Jesus Christ and the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places as well. So Paul says in verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart. Don't lose heart at my tribulations. Why? Because my tribulations are for you. They're on your behalf. I, I'm going through these because I simply am doing what God has called me to do. They are for your glory. Paul says, I'm just serving you. It's okay. It's okay. That really doesn't matter what happens to me. That's all God's deal. I'm just serving you, and I want to see you grow in Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes some very poignant words about this text. And I just want to read somewhat of a lengthy quote for us as we wind down our time tonight. He said this, This is the chief part of the great message of Christianity. Ever since the Lord Jesus Christ was in the world, this new humanity is being formed. Wars and periods of peace have alternated. There have been times of bloodshed and times of peace. Nothing apart from this is to be found in the secular history books. But we see more than the mere outward show. We see God in every generation drawing out a people unto himself from the world, creating them anew in Christ Jesus and adding them to the church. We see a new body, a new humanity gathered in, spreading, increasing, progressing, and developing something absolutely new. We see God gathering them together, preparing them and us for the day of manifestation. It is going on at this moment. It is God's grand purpose, he said, and it will be carried out until God's plan is complete. And when it is complete, 
He will send the Lord Jesus Christ back again into this world, riding on the clouds of heaven as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He will come back in judgment and He will destroy all of His enemies, Satan and all His forces and all who have followed Him and rejected Christ. All evil and sin in every shape and form will be cast into the lake of fire and the universe will be cleansed and purified. That's the church. Jesus Christ is building the church. Beloved, do we understand what we have been given? Do we understand what we are part of? Does that understanding move us to use what God has given us in the church? So that the watching world not only hears of reconciliation, but they see it in us. You see, that is to be the spiritual outcome. And so Paul says, don't worry about my troubles. Don't worry about my troubles. They're for your glory. And so I'll ask the question again tonight as we just close our time. Do you love the church? Do you love the church? Or do you just go to a church? Do you love the church? If you are a Christian, God was the one who put you in it. God equipped you for it. So be amazed. Be exercised. And be together. Let's pray. Father, we do again thank you. It's unfathomable that you would have us even here together. Oh, Lord, you are such a gracious God, considering us who are simply sinners by nature. It took the power of you to reconcile us to yourself, to make us new, to give us a heart of flesh that we might serve you and honor you, Lord, and yet there are so much of us that we don't understand about what you have given us. Is it any wonder, Lord, that the Apostle Paul prays that we would we would grasp the the breadth and the height and the depth and the length of all that we have in you? Lord, open our understanding. Help us to grasp that with all the intent that you have desired so that we might live as we ought for the church. So that your body would be the reflection of us together so that the world who sees us would see the transforming grace of Jesus Christ and the angelic realms would know of your manifold wisdom. May that be on our mind and our heart that we, like the Apostle Paul, say, to me, to me, you granted this grace. May that be on our lips as we speak and understand who we are so that we would serve one another with that kind of humility and heart so that your glory would be seen in us. Transform us, Lord, in that way. Even when we say we love the church, help us show it with our lives. For the sake of you and the glory of your great name, we pray in Christ's name.